This is They Create Worlds, episode 137, Dave Nutting and Nutting Industries. One, two, three, four. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we get to do another biography, but not just any biography. We're not even going to talk about that Atari thing. We're going to talk about Dave Nutting. That's right. Not to be confused with Bill Nutting. We did do an episode on Nutting Associates a while back, Bill Nutting's company. This is not that guy. There'll be a small amount of overlap because Dave Nutting is a relation of his. But as we'll see as we get started here, they had a very contentious relationship. It ended up with them going their separate ways, yet releasing very similar products through companies with very confusing similar names. Even though Bill Nutting's company was the company that almost by accident started this whole video game thing when they agreed to manufacture Nolan Bushnell and Ted Daphne's computer space game, Dave Nutting is a far, far more important pioneer. He is there at several key moments in the very, very early history of video games. And I feel like his name is slowly becoming more familiar to people who are truly, truly deeply into this history. But I would say the casual fan of video game history probably still only has the vaguest ideas of who he is and really... I would say after a couple of the people at Atari, he is the most important video game personality of the 1970s, at least when it comes to the commercial video game space and especially with what's going on in arcades. So he's related to Bill Nutting, Dave Nutting, Bill Nutting. They're brothers from what I understand. That's correct. And people get them confused all the time that are more casual video game history fans especially since Bill Nutting had Nutting Associates and eventually Dave Nutting would found a company called Dave Nutting Associates. I imagine there was some intentional competition going on in that choice of name, but it's something that confuses a lot of people. They'll refer to Nutting Associates as Dave Nutting Associates or they'll refer to Dave Nutting Associates as Nutting Associates. They'll assume that they were both the same company when they're really not. Dave and Bill were brothers. There were four Nutting brothers in total. Bill was the eldest. Dave was the third of the four. They grew up, both of them, in Chicago. Their father, as we discussed in our episode on Nutting Associates, was a highly placed executive with the Marshall Fields Department Store, which was a very important Chicago department store. They grew up in the affluent suburbs of the city. Bill was much more of a business guy, I think, from very early on. I mean, that's what he went to school to do. Dave was definitely more of a tinkerer. From a very young age, he became very interested in how things worked, pulling things apart and reassembling them to figure out how they work. He wrote a kind of strange (laughs) book called Secrets of the Creative Mind, which was partially autobiographical and partially self-help kind of book. That's kind of the wrong way to say it, because he's not really talking about addiction or anything like that, but partially a motivational book, like how to become more creative and, and how to 
fully harness your mind and creative activities. It gets kind of trippy. He does have some biographical information in there as well. He remembers his first experience being when he was around eight years old. He was born in 1930, just to give this a little bit of context, when he disassembled the family toaster because he was curious how it worked and then put it back together again. He did this while his parents were away, put it back together again before his parents ever realized that he had done anything. He started doing this over time, over the next few years, with more and more complex pieces of machinery until he made the mistake of taking apart an outboard motor while it was still partly warm from use. Learned a thing or two about the way metal expands in heat, which meant that he could take it apart, but he couldn't put it back together again because the pieces didn't fit anymore. He says in the book that his father was very understanding, even though his motor was ruined. I mean, they were fairly affluent, so while I'm sure he didn't want to replace something like that, it's not like it was something that he spent five years saving up for and could never own again because it broke. But very curious, as you can see, with the way things worked from a very early age. As with Bill, he was also very interested in airplanes. Again, this goes back to their father because their father was a pilot. Bill Nutting very much enjoyed flying airplanes. Dave Nutting also enjoyed flying planes. He continued to fly till near his death. He sadly just passed away just last year. He was 90. I mean, he didn't die young or anything. I did have the opportunity to speak with him two or three years before he died. Other people have interviewed him as well. So we were able to get a lot of his story on the record, which is good. But he is sadly no longer with us. He enjoyed flying, just like Bill did. But because he also had that tinkers bent, design bent, he also very much liked building model kits of aeroplanes, which is not something I don't think Bill was particularly involved with. He literally went out and he would get every single kit he could find and build them all. Then when he ran out of kits to build, he started trying to design his own kits out of pieces of metal and whatnot that he could scrounge together. Again, he's got this tinkerer's mentality, this builder's mentality, this designer's mentality going all the way back to his childhood. He graduates high school and he goes to college at Denison University in Ohio. But he only ends up staying there for a couple of years because somewhere in there he learns about the relatively new field of industrial design. It's unclear exactly when the term industrial design was first used. Certainly, it had been used here and there in the 19th century, which, of course, was the prime century of the Industrial Revolution in Europe and then in the United States. It's the idea that now that you're making things through mass production, now that you're just putting them on an assembly line and you have workers performing mindless tasks to just assemble things and aren't really craftsmen anymore— It's kind of the idea of how do you create a product that still has aesthetic appeal, practical functionality, and feels like something that was created by a master craftsman, even though the people that are actually building your thing, whatever it is, is no longer a craftsman themselves. So the industrial design discipline evolved in the early 20th century, particularly in Germany. The Bauhaus movement was not the first industrial design movement, but it's a very famous one. It's just this idea of how you use 
industrial materials and how you design something that will stand up to the rigors and the needs of the mass production process while still being stylish and cool looking. It was still a relatively new field. It's not one that Dave had known about, I don't think, when he first went to college. So after two years, he ends up transferring to the Pratt School of Industrial Design, which was a very early industrial design school, very well regarded. He spent four years there, graduated with a BA in industrial design. After that, he spent a couple of years in the Army in the Corps of Engineers. When he was done with that, he went to a very well-regarded Milwaukee firm called Brooks Stevens & Associates, founded by this gentleman, Brooks Stevens. I don't think it's around anymore today, but they were a pretty big deal in this time period that we're talking about, which is the 1960s primarily when Dave Nutting worked there. They were a contract firm, so what they would do is companies would come to them and say, we have this product we want to make. This is kind of what we want it to be like. This is kind of the general specifications we want. Now go and make us something that is good-looking and functional that fulfills these design parameters. They took on clients. So he worked on a wide number of things. He designed helicopters for Instrom. He designed aluminum cookware. He designed outboard motorboats. Kind of funny considering his early run-in with that. He actually has a connection to something that you work with every day, Jeffrey. Milling machines, CNC controls? Yes, indeed. He was the industrial designer on what he claims was the first, and I obviously haven't researched this because it's outside of my scope, but if it's not the first, it was one of the first computer-controlled milling machines. Always fun. It's not like he's the, the grand inventor of the concept of doing computer-controlled milling machines. You know, he was just the designer. They came to him and said, we want a computer-controlled milling machine. So he's not strictly the inventor. Still, he played a large role in creating something that employs you today, essentially. <laughs> For those who may not understand what we're talking about here, at least in my field of where I'm dealing with the IT side of it, these milling machines create what are known as rotary dies. So think of a cylinder. Think of it like a lathe, where you have this thing spinning on its axis, its long axis, and then you have a tool of some kind that comes down and engraves something out there, takes away material in order to create a blade, a shape, a stamp, or whatever it is you're trying to do with that cylinder in order to turn it into some sort of end product. You want to have a computer that comes in at these key points and does that instead of an operator sitting there going, okay, come down at two inches here, four inches here, six inches there, do all these crazy stuff. You don't want an operator sitting there sipping coffee and eventually making a mistake. You just want a computer that has a program that goes, okay, I just follow these steps and everything's done. My interaction with these machines is I just need to get them on the network so that these programs get loaded or I need to do some modification to them in order to allow for remote monitoring or something like that. Thankfully, I don't have to deal much with the maintenance part of it because that's way beyond my skill set. Once you get away from the computer part of it, it's above my knowledge level of how all that stuff interacts. Absolutely. 
He did that. Uh, I think the name of the company was Thomas Kearney. I don't know if that's a company that still exists, but at that time they were one of the big manufacturers of milling machines. But this was 65 that he did this. I mean, this could be a company that's long gone, either merged into something else or gone bankrupt or whatever. That's not necessarily a company that Jeff's company works with. Definitely the, the same kind of idea. And it was the beginning of computer control in that field. Through doing projects like this, Dave Nutting did become aware of the potential of computers and electronics. Now, he was not an electrical engineer. Even though he was very important in video games and in video game design, as we will see moving forward in this profile, he was never a programmer himself. He was never an electrical engineer himself. As an industrial designer, he was a very good mechanical engineer. He did have that skill set. He was also good at the aesthetic side of design, how things should look, how things should feel. So these skills were very useful to him as he moved into the coin-operated field, but he was never actually engineering or programming any product. Probably the most important thing, I think unquestionably the most important thing that he did in his industrial design days, which really is quite frankly even more significant, I think, than anything he did in his video game days, most likely, is he was the principal designer of the Jeep Grand Wagoneer, the vehicle that is considered to be the very first SUV. It was in continuous production from the end of the 60s all the way to 1991 in its original incarnation, sold hundreds of thousands in that period of time. It's actually kind of interesting. He tells the story about this in his book. This was in 1961, so it was actually pretty early still in his period of employment with the company. What happened is there was a boom in station wagons in this time period. The big Detroit companies, which Jeep was not, Jeep was not a Detroit auto company. The big Detroit companies like Ford and Chevy were making these station wagons which had extra seating and extra trunk space. It's kind of the idea the modern suburban family is always on the go, so they need more space to haul the kids around. It's kind of what people did before the minivan, <laughs> essentially, to haul their kids around. And, of course, nowadays people tend to use the SUV, which is what we're getting to here. Certainly people, Jeffrey and I's age, still remember the, the station wagon concept. Even by the time we were kids, the station wagon had mostly run its course, there were still lots of people that owned station wagons. You still saw a lot of station wagons on the road when we were kids, I think it's fair to say. Certainly, and I know that a lot of people sort of handed off these older station wagons to their kids as, this is going to be your first car, because usually those things were like tanks. Yeah, They're, they're big, they're a little bulky, but they're all steel, and they can take a few bumps. Absolutely. There was this craze for the station wagon, and Jeep wanted to get in on this, but... Jeep, of course, was known for its rugged vehicles. They're named after its, its Wileys is the, the original company. I mean, they're named for their most successful product, which was the Jeep that the U.S. military and other allied militaries used in World War II. They have the image as being the car company for people that want something rugged, something all-terrain. So they said, okay, people want station wagons today. Let's give them a station wagon but let's do a four-wheel drive, all-terrain kind of station wagon. Okay, so they go to Brooke Stevens Design. They say, this is basically what we want. We want a station wagon, except rugged. But they wanted 
to emulate what the Detroit automakers were doing in this time period as well. Remember, we're talking the 1960s here. So if you think back to 1960s classic cars, which you can still see people driving on the road occasionally that have restored them and are still very popular at auto shows or at car museums or whatever else. If you think of the vehicles of that period, they were all very space age. That's the exact aesthetic they were going for. I mean, there was so much interest in technology, science, and the space race with the Soviet Union that everything was all weird curves, fins, and all of these things that were meant to evoke jet planes or rocket ships as opposed to plain old automobiles. Jeep, while his Jeep wanted to emulate what Detroit was doing with the design of this vehicle and do something similar with fins and whatever else. So the Brooks Stevens people were contracted to create a design. Then Wiley's Jeep was going to do their own design. They were going to compare notes on what both groups came up with and then pick and choose and incorporate the best features of each into the final design. Dave Nutting, who at this point I think is still a pretty junior associate at Brooks Stevens and Associates, is part of this team that's working on the Jeep Grand Wagoneer design at the company. He just thinks this is all wrong. He thinks to himself, this is a company, Wiley's Jeep, Wiley's or or Jeep, that is known for its rugged all-terrain vehicles, and they're asking us to design essentially a family rugged all-terrain vehicle. Why are we imitating these big, futuristic-looking definitely look like they belong on a, one of these fancy new freeways rather than in the middle of a forest someplace, Detroit automobiles. This is nuts. He starts working a little bit on the side and comes up with a design that feels a little more rugged, feels more like something that's a working vehicle rather than something you're cruising the strip with. After he gets a little way through it, he approaches Brooke Stevens in secret says, I really think we're doing this all wrong. This is what I think we should do instead. Brooks said to him, I see where you're coming from, but we've been contracted to do a job and we have to give the client what they want because that's rule number one of being a contractor to a client is give them what they want. But then he said, however, since you feel strongly about this, if you want to work on this alternate design on your own time, we'll bring it with us when we do the final presentation. So that's what he did. He started basically working 14-hour days, and he was continuing to work on the regular design of the vehicle and then in his spare time work on his own design. So the day of the big meeting comes, they show them both models, and of course the Wiley's people, the Jeep people internal, show their model too. They love Dave Nutting's design so much that they accept that as the design without modification. Not picking and choosing from the different designs, but it's like, your design, that's going to be the one. Just to be clear what we mean here, we don't mean that Dave Nutting decided every last feature of the Jeep Grand Wagoneer. We don't mean that he was responsible for the mechanics of it or the steering or the brakes or the engine. He was not an automobile designer. He was an industrial designer. What he was responsible for was what materials were going to be used in this chassis in this cab, and then what the shape of the whole thing was going to look like. But still, he is the one that came up with the look of this automobile. Today, the Jeep Grand Wagoneer is essentially considered the first SUV. 
it was not called a sport utility vehicle or SUV in its own time because it's a product category that didn't exist. Now that SUVs have a long history, this is kind of considered the beginning of that. We really have Dave Nutting to thank for the profile of how these vehicles look even today, because instead of going in that futuristic Detroit direction, he went with rugged, lots of windows, lots of glass, since it's an all-terrain vehicle and you may be going off-road and you want to be able to be able to look around and visualize your surroundings better. All of that comes from him, and I'm sure that Jeffrey will put some random Jeep Grand Wagoneer thing in the show notes. I'm just looking at a few pictures of him right now. Similar design to what we would consider an SUV today, but also I can see some sort of tie-in to the station wagons that Mm -hmm. you and I remember. On the side panel, and this was something that was very common with station wagons, is wood paneling on the side of this thing. I'm looking at a bunch of these, and there is a prominent wood paneling effect going on the left and right side, up and down the doors and into the back and a little bit in the front. It's an interesting design. It's almost a marriage between a station wagon and what we would today call an SUV. Absolutely. It's it's really, in a big way, the missing link, so to speak, between these two types of automobiles. That was all Dave on the visual look of it. Again, he's not doing the engine or the controls or any of that kind of stuff. The general aesthetic. Exactly. That's really probably the biggest thing that he ever did. I mean, the evolution of the SUV is probably bigger than his evolution of video games contributions. But nonetheless, he is still an incredibly important pioneer in video games. Let's get our friend Dave out of uh, general contract industrial design work and into the coin-operated games industry, because we are talking pre-video games here. There is a lot of confusion into how exactly all of these pieces fit together. Bill Nutting, Dave Nutting, Nutting Associates, all of this. We don't have a complete answer, and we probably never will have a complete answer. There have been a few interviews done to try to sort out as much of this as possible. Sadly, Bill Nutting died in 2008, before most people were taking an interest in chronicling this history, before I started conducting interviews as well. Bill Nutting was interviewed once in the 80s, in the early 80s, a real long time ago, by Stephen Bloom for his book, Video Invaders. He might have interviewed him for some magazine coverage as well because he was at one of the early video game magazines. But right in that period, he interviewed him. He just asked him a small number of questions specifically about computer space. He wasn't interviewing him generally in an oral history kind of way. There are only a couple of quotes from Bill Nutting in Video Invaders. I imagine by now, any other part of that interview is probably lost because when you're a reporter type that's doing interviews, you don't tend to necessarily save everything. I mean, because you're doing interviews all the time. So you save it as long as you need it. You save it for a bit in case somebody challenges you about something that was said, and then it's probably gone. That's the only testimony we have from Bill Nutting. Dave Nutting has his version of the story, which we'll get into, of course. I did interview Claire Nutting, who was Bill Nutting's widow. She provided some insight on the Bill Nutting side of the story, which is helpful. Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, did do interviews with a couple of Dave Nutting's, several, I should say, of Dave Nutting's early partners at some of his early companies. While they don't have a complete picture of the story, they provide some information as well. 
we'll tell this story as best we can. Just understand going into it that it's going to be incomplete. The first part of this is is going to be stuff that we also discussed in our Nutting Associates episode, but we really do need to do it again within the context that we have here as well. Around about 1962, Eugene Kleiner, who was one of the founders of Fairchild Semiconductor and would later be one of the founders of the very influential venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins, decided to establish a new company that was devoted to computerized educational products. He named this company edX or edX, I'm not sure which way it was pronounced, which was a shortening of the phrase educational excellence. They started making quiz machines for training of people. It it was probably based on some work that was done in the 40s by another company that did the same thing, though we don't really know the entire lineage of that. On around 1963, an engineer at the company named Thomas Nesbitt adapted this technology in these quiz games to be a coin-operated amusement product. So you would have a projector inside a cabinet Then you would have a roll of film. That roll of film would have the questions on it. It would spin through, show the questions on a tiny screen on the cabinet. It would ask a question. There'd be four options, A, B, C, D. There'd be buttons that correspond to those options that you could press to choose your answer. And then there were electromechanical components within that machine that were able to determine whether the button you pressed was actually the button that was pointing to the right answer. They called this machine the Knowledge Computer. Bill Nutting was an investor in edX. His father-in-law was an associate of Eugene Kleiner. So when Kleiner was looking for investors, he went to Bill Nutting's father-in-law, who invested. Then he alerted Bill to the opportunity as well, and then Bill also invested. At this point, he took some kind of role within the company. I don't know if he was formerly an employee of the company, but I'm guessing he probably was. This is one of the things that's a little hazy. In 1964, they brought the Knowledge Computer to the Music Operators of America show, the MOA show, the main coin-op exhibition. He was the person that was responsible for marketing it at the show and was at the booth and was demoing it to people at the show. He was very intimately involved with this coin-op amusement, the Knowledge Computer. Shortly after that, I think in 1965, edX was purchased by Raytheon, major defense contractor. Raytheon had no interest in this quiz stuff. Bill Nutting had been interested in founding his own company to do something. He didn't know necessarily what, but something for quite some time. He saw an opportunity here. He went to Raytheon and asked to purchase the rights, the patents and the rights and everything right out, not a license, but actually acquire the intellectual property itself to the knowledge computer so that he could continue marketing it as a coin-operated amusement. Raytheon agreed to do this. It looks like he started doing so in 1965 under the auspices of something that at that time he called the Nutting Corporation. I don't know that Nutting Corporation was actually an incorporated company. It may not have even been a real company, like with paperwork filed on it or anything. It could be that he just needed a name 
to make himself look official, and that's what he chose. Again, you know, there's a lot of haziness in this period. But there is reference in the coin-op trades in 1965 to Nutting having placed a couple of dozen units on location in California under this name, Nutting Corporation. As we discussed in our Nutting Associates episode, the knowledge computer was bulky, clunky, and not particularly well-suited for the rigors of the coin-operated environment. People are mean to those machines, Jeffrey. People are mean to coin-operated machines? Heavens forbid! They get frustrated and they bang on them. Something's not quite working right, so they shake them. There's just all sorts of abuse. They're out in public. They're often not being monitored by attendants in these days. A lot of coin-operated machines were just left out. You know, people would do stuff to them to try to cheat them or that kind of thing. I mean, it's rough handling. Sort of like when you get really, really angry at those video games, kids, and then you go, Why did I lose? (laughs) Well, that scared the cat. And then the cat runs away. You're genuinely scared. It's wonderful. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, for those of you listening at home, those were not simulated pounds. That was happening in real time, right on the desk. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So it was not well engineered for that environment, and it was also kind of bulky and expensive. Just all around not made for it. Bill Dunning decided that he had to redesign it. This is the point where Dave Nutting enters the picture. Dave Nutting is still working at Brooks Stevens at this point. He's not leaving the company to do this. It's unclear to me who really approached whom. The reason I say this is, I mean, it's it's clear what people have said. That's not ambiguous. I do have to wonder. Dave Nutting says that Bill approached him about maybe taking a pass at redesigning this knowledge computer. I kind of have to wonder if Dave inserted himself into the situation and asked to be a part of it. According to Claire, and according to a letter that she read me that Bill wrote to their son, a letter I have not seen, so in all fairness, you know, I have not authenticated it, though I can't imagine why she would make that up. Falsify the information. In all fairness, it's a non-authenticated letter. Bill and Dave had a kind of awkward relationship going way back. Bill was the oldest. He was kind of the favorite son of the four. He married very well, Claire Ullman, uh, her maiden name. I mean, her father, the one that invested in edX, was very, very highly placed executive at Revereware. He was the one that was seen to be happening and going places and was the favorite child of the father, at least according to what Bill wrote in this letter. Obviously, no one's asked the father about this. According to Bill's letter and and what Claire has said, Dave has always felt a certain amount of resentment about that. This is not something that Dave himself has ever talked about. Siblings are complicated. I can't say that all of this is necessarily 100% true, but so just take it for what it's worth. He was kind of resentful of that, and it may be that Dave wanted to latch on to this because it was the thing that the favorite son was doing. It wouldn't surprise me, quite frankly, if Dave inserted himself in this rather than Bill asking him to do it. But either way, there was a moment of time when Bill and Dave were maybe going to work together on a redesign of this thing. 
Dave got together with a friend of his named Harold Montgomery, who worked for a Milwaukee-area engineering company called Cutler Hammer. Harold was an electrical engineer. He knew this stuff. Dave had the mechanical skills and the aesthetic design skills. He brings Harold in and says, my brother's working on this redesign of this thing. Would you help me out? And then maybe we'll all go into business together and make some money on this. Harold Montgomery's like, sure, let's do this. At the same time, Bill reached out to a marketing guy by the name of Gene Wagner. Gene Wagner was a former school teacher in Detroit who transitioned out of that into the operating business of coin-operated amusements. He just happened to know a guy who knew a guy, and they ended up going together. He started it with these other guys as a side business while continuing to teach, but then it got big enough that he ultimately quit teaching to fully devote himself to this coin-operated games operation and eventually even got into distributing a little bit as well. Uh, You may recall from past episodes that you have this three-tier system in coin-operated games where you have the manufacturers that make them, the distributors that sell them on to the operators, and then the operators place them on location and collect the money from the coin drop, usually splitting it with the location owner unless it happens to be a business that they also own, like a big arcade or something. Exactly. Wagner's involved in operating, he's involved in distributing, and he's a former teacher, so the whole educational thing interests him. He actually meets Bill Nutting in 1964 at that MOA show where Bill first displayed the knowledge computer. They kind of got to know each other a little bit that way, and I guess they kept in touch. Bill enlists Gene for kind of the marketing know-how of this whole thing. Dave is the industrial designer that's going to theoretically handle the redesign of this. His friend Harold, because they need an electrical engineer guy as well, is roped into this. Gene remembers them having a meeting. Even if Dave kind of inserted himself into this process artificially, it does appear that at least at one point Bill was going along with this because Gene remembers a meeting with all of them, and he could be misremembering. He remembers a meeting with all of them, with with Harold, with Dave, with Bill, where he laid out to them, okay, this is how this stuff really works. This is how this industry really works. This is how you should adapt or change this device to make it work better for the rigors of the coin-operated environment. According to Gene, Gene was going to get the rights to sell this thing east of the Mississippi River through his company, while Bill was going to take care of sales west of the Mississippi River through his company. I don't know exactly when this meeting was. Nutting Associates was founded in January 1966. I'm not sure when the meeting happened, so I don't know if Nutting Associates was a thing yet. But either way, Bill was going to have a company, and he would sell it west of the Mississippi. Dave and Harold take a shot at doing this, at doing a redesign. Dave concentrates on the projector. He sources new projectors from a local uh, Wisconsin company, works on a complete redesign of that. He's also working on the aesthetics of it, whereas Harold is working on the guts of the machine, the electronics, the circuit boards. The original machine was very much electromechanical. It used relays. The redesign was still electromechanical, but they used plug-in relays, which means that there is a circuit board as well, and those relays are attached to the circuit board. 
So it's kind of a halfway step between purely mechanical and fully electronic. So in Harold's memory, Bill actually came out and looked at some of their preliminary design work. He came out to Milwaukee. They're a well-off family. I mean, Dave comes from the same well-off family, so he's he's done pretty well for himself. He has a nice house with a pretty large basement, and he turned a portion of that basement just for his own use, not for this project, but you know, even before that project, into a machine shop. So they were able to do this whole project in the basement of Dave's house. Harold remembers Bill coming out at one point and looking at some of their preliminary work and saying, okay, this is fine, this is not fine, maybe you should do this, maybe you should do that, gave them some pointers, and then they kept doing it. Then the main event where things broke apart is Harold and Dave flew out to California, where Bill lived. They had a big dinner meeting where they were going to finalize, okay, are we really going to do this together? Are we going into to business together? Harold's understanding, at least, couldn't say if that's everyone's understanding, but Harold's understanding was that they were looking at creating a three-way partnership. So Bill, Dave, and Harold would all be partners in this business. Gene Wagner's still here as well, but I get the sense that from what Gene has said, and I should mention at this point that both Gene Wagner and Harold Montgomery were interviewed by Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, who shared these interviews with me. According to what Gene said, it sounds more like he was going to not be a part of the company making these things, but was just going to be the seller of them through his own company, you know, east of the Mississippi. There's going to be this three-way partnership. Both Harold and Dave say that they feel it was Claire, Bill's wife, that torpedoed everything. Harold feels like Bill was ready to go along with this, but that Claire raised some problems outside of their meeting. Claire was there, I mean, for dinner and everything, because it was at Bill's house. Claire wasn't involved in the business discussions, but then Harold got the impression that Bill went and talked to Claire about things, and then Claire had some issues and so scuttled the deal. Harold speculates that maybe she was afraid that the three-way partnership was a problem because Dave and Harold were friends. They kind of formed a block, and it would be very easy for Bill to be outvoted on company issues two to one as a result. That's entirely speculation. It's not something that anyone told Harold. He wonders if that's what happened. Dave Nutting has always said that Claire threatened to divorce Bill if he went through with this business and really bullied him into not going in with Dave. He's consistently told that story for decades. I don't think that's true at all. I've only interviewed Claire once, obviously. It's not like I know her really well or anything. Bill and Claire were high school sweethearts. They continued dating through college. Bill even transferred two years into college so that he could be at the same university as Claire. They got married out of college. They remained married for his entire life. They raised a family. I talked to one of their sons, Craig Nutting. I didn't ask about that specific incident, but just in terms of family life and home life, he made it sound like it was always a very loving family. Obviously, Parents, when they're fighting or something, try to keep that from their kids as much as possible. So, you know, a kid at the time wouldn't necessarily know. But I mean, like I said, they stayed married. They never divorced. 
doesn't sound like they ever had a period of separation or great enough tension that the kids would have ever noticed it. Did she really threaten to divorce her high school sweetheart over starting a company? From a wealthy family, even if the company didn't work out, not like they were going to be on the street. It certainly stretches plausibility. Then you combine that with the letter that Claire read to me, which was a letter that Bill wrote. This isn't a letter that Claire wrote. This is a letter that Bill wrote. So according to Claire, like I said, I haven't authenticated it, but according to Claire, Bill's own words were that he did not fully trust his brother to be a reliable business partner with him because they had a long history of conflict that had a lot to do with sibling rivalry and seeking parental attention, all of those things that can happen with a family with lots of kids. I don't think that story's true. What Harold says may be partially true. It may be that Claire weighed in and reinforced Bill's own negative thoughts. It may be that Bill had doubts about doing this all along, but it was his brother. He felt like he had to give him a shot, felt uneasy about it. Maybe he discussed it with Claire, and Claire helped him bring into focus how much he really didn't think it was a good idea to work with his brother. I mean, it's it's certainly possible that Claire was a linchpin in the whole thing falling apart, but I don't find the divorce story credible at all. I think that's Dave letting some bad blood cause him to tell some stories about other parts of the family. Hard to say. It's always hard to say in that kind of thing. Yeah. Regardless of what happened, the deal falls apart. Bill decides that he's going to redesign the knowledge computer on his own, which he goes off and does. If you want more details on that, listen to our Nutting Associates episode, and you can get that full story. Dave now is stuck. There's some conflicting tales about how much work they had actually done. Some sources indicate, I think Harold indicated, that they had a plan, they had a schematic. Maybe they had done a little rough prototype work, but that was as far as they got. I think it's Gene that said that they had actually already started purchasing parts in anticipation of going to production and already had materials to build like the first hundred machines on hand. Again, there's some uncertainty about how far along they were, but the fact is that they had done this thing. They still liked the idea. So they decided, well, even if we're not doing this in partnership with Bill, we're going to do it anyway. According to Bill's letter, the same one I referenced earlier to his son, this was very hurtful to Bill. Bill saw this as nothing more than Dave being sour grapes and basically stealing his concept. There is some truth to the fact that they did, in a way, steal it. Bill Nutting did not create the knowledge computer. He did not create the redesigned knowledge computer, computer quiz. He had people that did that for him. So it's not like it was his idea. There was nothing illegal about Dave and Harold building their own similar type of machine. There's nothing underhanded about it in that way, but it is true that Dave and Harold would have never even started thinking about the very concept of building a coin-operated quiz machine if Bill hadn't brought them into the loop on the knowledge computers. I can see where Bill would feel that way, and it's very possible that's part of what motivated Dave, especially if this sibling rivalry that Bill described in the letter really did exist in a tangible way. Dave very well may have been like, well, fine. I'll show my big brother. 
I'll go create my own trivia game with blackjack and hookers, you know? That's what he decides to do. He doesn't forget about the whole thing. He just decides, well, I'll make this myself. Me and Harold will make this myself. They enlisted Gene. I don't know exactly why Gene ended up not going with Bill, because Gene's whole introduction to this thing was through Bill, so you would think he'd be more of a Bill person than a Dave person. Maybe it's just a simple matter of them both being located in the northern Midwest because Gene's in Michigan and Dave and Harold are in Wisconsin. They enlist Gene Wagner to be their marketing guy. He refuses to move to Wisconsin, to Milwaukee. He doesn't want to live there. He said, I'll be your marketing guy, but I'm staying in Michigan. Dave was like, okay, that's fine, whatever. The three of them go into business together and create a company called Nutting Industries. This is Dave Nutting's first coin-op company. Bill Nutting, at this point, has Nutting Associates. Dave Nutting, at this point, has Nutting Industries. Bill Nutting has Computer Quiz. Dave Nutting has IQ Computer. I, as the consumer, go, how are these different? (laughs) You know, the answer is not very. The answer is it was very confusing for everybody because there's an article in, I believe it's Cashbox. I don't think it was Billboard. There's an article in one of the two trades announcing this whole computer quiz thing coming in 1967 that very clearly mixes up the two companies because it pairs together some wrong names of products and wrong people involved Ethan, for a long time, thought that this meant that there was some further partnership that we weren't aware of. I don't think that's the case, especially after he interviewed Harold and Gene, that that article was half gobbledygook to them, too. I don't think it shows any additional partnership between the two of them that went any further. I just think that the coin-operated trade publications were just as confused (laughs) as later video game history enthusiasts were about how Bill and Dave and IQ Computer and Nutting Associates and everything else fit together. It's confusing. In Bill's mind, he feels Dave did that deliberately, made it deliberately confusing, and that's possible. Certainly, Dave's not an idiot. He had to know some of that was going to be confusing, and he was second. Nutting Industries is after Nutting Associates. He's the one that chose to go with a very similar name, so there's probably some truth to that. But, uh, yeah. So you have two products, hitting in 67, that are very, very similar to each other. A computer Quiz and IQ Computer. Obviously, they're slightly differently designed because Bill did go get somebody else to redesign the Knowledge Computer, but they're designed along the same principles and they have kind of the same ideas. In some ways, Dave Nutting has a little bit of an advantage, I think it's fair to say, only because he has an experienced coin-op person in Gene Wagner to sell this thing for them. They actually end up in the very beginning targeting bowling alleys very strongly because Harold Montgomery had a friend that was very highly placed in the American Bowling Congress. So this friend knew a lot of people that owned local bowling alleys. So they kind of had an in. They had someone that could really introduce them to that area. Bowling alleys historically had been places where coin-operated amusements were usually operated as well. So, I mean, it, it wouldn't be an unusual product to see in a bowling alley. They really focus on bowling alleys. They have Gene really trying to work things for them. 
Gene does some test markets through his own company. They actually get another one of the Nutting brothers, Charles Nutting, ends up becoming involved as an operator. He doesn't join Nutting Industries, but he gets involved on the operations end as part of this as well. You know, they do pretty well with it. There's some numbers floating around. It's hard to say exactly how accurate they are because it's hard to say exactly where they come from. It's intimated that they come from Dave himself, but there's still no provenance on them. It's hard to say whether that's true or not, but at least in his deposition that he gave in the Bally v. Williams pinball case, something that we'll be getting to in the second part of this examination, not to get it too far ahead of the story, but in that deposition, he said it sold about 4,000 units. That's probably about good. Computer quiz probably sold about the same amount. Those other figures indicate the computer quiz might have been slightly more successful in sales than IQ Computer, but they were close to each other. They kind of filled a niche that the industry very much appreciated at that time. It's an industry that has always battled for legitimacy, always been battling perception of ties to organized crime, to juvenile delinquency, corruption of the youth, all of this bad stuff. So to have a game that you could say, look, this is educational. Education is good. We love education, right, kids? Of course we like education. We need to educate our youth for the future. That's right. So that was something that was very valuable to the coin-op industry. So there was definitely a brief boom for quiz games and other similar thinking games like word unscramble games and whatnot that started from this launch and lasted from about 67 to 70, give or take. Nutting Industries is doing okay because they've gotten to the bowling alleys and all of this. Then they get a little too ambitious. At this point, even though Dave Nutting would end up spending a decade and a half in coin-operated amusements, at this point, Dave Nutting didn't really see his company, Nutting Industries, as a coin-op business. He didn't see himself as the next Bally or the next Midway. He wanted to expand these ideas out of that venue and move more broadly into educational products. It's kind of funny. The Knowledge Computer was born because a company that was broadly into teaching and training machines decided to narrow that technology to a coin-operated amusement that then Bill Nutting took and ran with. Now we're looking at a reverse of that, where a company that is doing a coin-operated trivia game wants to broaden that into more general training and educational products. Gene Wagner is not comfortable with this. He sees the company as a viable coin-operated amusement company, but he doesn't see it necessarily viable as anything bigger than that. Gene Wagner basically says, I'm out. Okay, thanks. Bye. Dave founds a new subsidiary of Nutting Industries called MODEC, M-O-D-E-C. I think it's an acronym for something because it's all capitalized, but I quite frankly don't really care. Some historian I am, I guess, huh? Yeah, you should at least know <laughs> what it stands for, you silly historian you. <laughs> but he uh, creates the subsidiary called MODEC, not to be confused with MODAC, the Marvel supervillain that is going to market training platforms more broadly to schools, to corporations, to whoever wants a training program. 
that just ends up eating a ton of money and not going anywhere. They also get involved. Harold Montgomery's father is in the frozen food business, so they also kind of get sidetracked into trying to do some machinery in the food business that ties into what Harold's father is doing. That never really goes anywhere. Modek doesn't really go anywhere. They make a couple of sales, but they throw a lot of R&D money at that without much return. They neglect advancing the coin-operated amusement side of things. I mean, they release a couple other machines, including specific trivia games like a golf one that they think maybe they can put in golf courses and stuff like that. They really kind of neglect pushing the coin-operated amusement business forward to go into these other side ventures, and then those side ventures end up just eating a lot of capital, not producing much in the way of tangible results. The company ends up in financial trouble. At the last second, Dave tries to pivot the company back into coin-operated amusements. He adapts the basic film strip technology that's used in IQ Computer to create a more traditional electromechanical target shooting game called Red Baron. It's got a rotating drum with film on it that has the plane flying around and then you're trying to shoot it. There's When you pull the trigger, there's little tracers that show kind of where you're hitting. I think it probably uses wipers and contacts as all of these games did at that time. As that plane is moving on the wheel, there's probably wipers that are moving between different contacts on the machine. I'm not positive about that, but that's the most logical way. And then you've got wipers on your control your stick as well, and if your wiper and the wiper associated with the target are on the same contact at the same time, it completes a circuit. That's how you know it registers a hit. That's how most of the games of that time work, so I assume Red Baron did too, but I'm not 100% positive about that. They put out this Red Baron game, but it's too little too late. By the time they're just getting that to market, they're really running out of money. So. Dave Nutting, who finally quit Brooke Stevens in about 1968 to do this coin-op thing full-time. Before that, he had been still doing his day job at Brooke Stevens. 68, he left. Things don't go the way he hopes. So then in 1971, Nutting Industries collapses. They're just out of money. They have to file for bankruptcy. Dave then founds a new company straight out of the ashes of the old, called Milwaukee Coin Industries, or MCI for short. I don't know exactly how this all went down, but he's able to retain the rights to the old products and all of that. He may have actually been one of the creditors, him personally, to his company, which may have helped him pull some of this stuff out. Remember, he is independently financially well off. Part of the reason that he can be a serial company founder and, and keep plugging away at it even as his companies fail is that it really never affects his own personal fortune. And creates a new company called Milwaukee Coin Industries in 1971, MCI, and releases a new version of Red Baron. It's basically the same game, but it has electronic sound, which the first one did not have, and it has a few other tweaks. I don't think there's any footage of Red Baron out there. We'll certainly look. There are pictures of the cabinet. I mean, you can see what a Red Baron looked like. I just don't think there's any footage of a Red Baron being played. I think film strip games have a particular disadvantage when trying to be preserved. A lot of games from this early 70s period where 
film strip was a big part of their operation. There's nothing out there on YouTube, and I think part of that is that the film, in most cases, is probably worn out. We'll see what we can do. That was kind of their first game at Milwaukee Coin Industries. Then he moved on from that to do other games using the same film strip technology that were also shooting games with names like uh, Desert Fox and Blue Max and just variations on the same theme. Even though he's had a small amount of success with these novelty pieces, which is what the trade basically called anything that was not one of the staple products like pool or pinball or shuffle alleys or whatnot, it's a very difficult business because the coin-op trade had basically its foundational pillars, which were pinball, jukeboxes, pool, and cigarette vending machines. Amusement companies were not generally involved in vending machines, but they did tend to operate cigarette vending machines because coin-operated games were generally found in bars. That's the one kind of vending machine that a bar would usually have would be a cigarette vendor. So those were your staple products. Those were your evergreen products. You had to release new models every year. You knew that the next thing was going to sell. You just make a couple of tweaks, or if it's a pinball, slap a new playfield design on there, and boom, you have your sales for the next year. Novelty products, which were also very important part of the industry, were one-and-done products where you make one, it has its couple months in the sun, you sell two, 3,000 units, then you have to think up something else. It's a hard business to be in if that's going to be your entire business. Most of the companies in the field had a staple product or two that they could rely on, and then they did their novelties on top of that. Dave really felt that he should be expanding beyond the novelties for the long-term viability of the business. His main rabbi in the coin-operated games industry was a fellow by the name of John Belota. It had been from the very founding of the company. Like Gene Wagner, John Belota was an operator, but he was a far more big-time distributor and operator on the East Coast than Gene Wagner was. He was a big name in the field. Belota was an important advisor to Nutting throughout this period. Belota told him, you know, if you really want to stick in this business, you really have to figure out a way to break into pinball. Pinball is the staple product. If you have a pinball line, that's going to sustain you even if this other crazy stuff like quiz games or target shooting games or whatever else is up and down, up and down. Nutting's like, yeah, that makes sense. However, there's a problem, and it's a problem that lots of companies have found out over the years that thought that they could just waltz into pinball, including Atari, which we've talked about in some of our Atari episodes. Can't really go a whole episode without mentioning Atari at all, can we? (laughs) One can only hope. Pinball machines are very complicated. They have a lot of moving parts, a lot of moving mechanical parts, relays, stepper switches, flippers, pop bumpers, all of this craziness. They're complicated pieces of machinery. These these subcomponents are complicated pieces of machinery to tool up. So it's actually kind of expensive to build a pinball machine. The reason that the big Chicago companies like Gottlieb and Williams and Bally really had a monopoly on the pinball business 
going all the way back essentially to the 40s, early 50s, and there had really not been another company successful in penetrating the business since then. There are a few companies that came and went very quickly that lasted for a couple of years, but nothing that ever stuck in the same way as the top four companies, Gottlieb, Williams, Bally, and Chicago Coin, is because of that expense and complexity. These companies, some of them, especially Bally, vertically integrated. So they were able to save their money because they bought the companies that made all of these subcomponents and had a nice, completely vertically integrated system. Even the ones that didn't have as big an internal operation as Bally did, Chicago, by virtue of becoming the center of the pinball industry, had this entire infrastructure built up about manufacturing all of these components. They were experts at it, which meant that they knew efficient ways of manufacturing that saved them money. They were supplying companies that were right in town, so you didn't have a lot of complex shipping arrangements to further drive up prices. They could produce these components locally in high volume because they knew that there were several companies in their local area that were going to use these products, and so you also got the discounts that come from just bulk creation. That combination of vertical integration, local expertise, and bulk production meant that those Chicago companies retained a lock on the pinball industry that nobody else could really break. Atari thought that they could get into that industry by using fancy new technologies, and they couldn't because their costs were just completely out of line with the cost of the Chicago companies, and they couldn't compete. Dave knew that he couldn't just create pinballs in the same way that Bally or Williams were creating pinballs. He'd get eaten alive. He had to have a hook, something that was new and different, just to him. That hook was going to be solid state technology. Something that the entire pinball industry eventually went to. Exactly, and something that he was one of the pioneers in. He had already worked some with solid-state electronics. I had mentioned that when they launched the new version of Red Baron through MCI, for instance, that it had electronic sound. There was circuitry in there. There was electronic to provide the sound effects. He had been in with Harold Montgomery. Harold Montgomery wasn't part of MCI. He parted ways at that point, but he had been working with Harold Montgomery, who was an electrical engineer and who knew what was going on a little bit in electronics as a result of that. He was surrounded by some of this technology, even though he himself was not somebody that could work with it. He started experimenting with incorporating electronics into some of his existing novelty products. We're not talking about going full-on pinball yet, but he started experimenting with electronics a little more. He brought in some people that knew a little bit about electronics. One of them was a guy by the name of Dwayne Nudston. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. He was one. And another one, the key guy, was a guy by the name of Jeff Fredrickson. Jeff Fredrickson is an even more unsung hero of the early coin-operated video game industry, even than Dave Nutting is. Even though I don't think casual enthusiasts know Dave Nutting very well, I think it's gotten to the point where people that really pay attention to this stuff know who Dave Nutting is. He has been interviewed a few times. His name is out there a little bit. Jeff Fredrickson is really, really not that well-known because he hasn't really given that much in the way of interviews. He's kind of faded into the background. While Nutting was the guy that had the ideas to do some of these things, 
Fredrickson was the electrical engineer that had the know-how and actually turned these ideas into a reality. We're going to get way more involved with Jeff Fredrickson's big contributions in part two of this look at nutting because it's really a few years after this that, or a couple of years after this, that his contributions start becoming meaningful. We will introduce him and set him up here. He had gone to school, to college for electrical engineering, ended up not finishing his degree and joining the Air Force instead. He was stationed in Turkey, in Europe, for part of his tour. He ended up becoming a key punch operator on a computer that they had on the military base in Turkey. So that was his first exposure to computers. As part of that work, he became very frustrated because there was no real error correction. So as a key punch operator, literally all he's doing is punching programs using the key punch, which then punches the little holes in the cards that are then read by the computer. That's what the key punch does. If you've ever seen pictures of those old school cards that contained programs on them where the holes dictated the logic and what the program should do, the key punch operator is the guy that's perforating those cards with those holes, those punched cards. He's not doing the programming. It's just his job to put the programs in. They had no good method of error correction. He's told to do his punches as he's supposed to do his punches, and then he presumably hands those programs off to the operator of the computer who's actually going to run those programs. As any of our much, much, much older listeners who worked with punched cards know, this whole process was done through batch processing, which means you had a stack of cards, you fed them all through at once, and then the computer read those cards serially then spit out a result at the end based on what your batch of cards said. That's why it's called batch processing, because a stack of cards is a batch. You put the batch in, and you get something out. Think of a big hopper. You just put a whole bunch of cards in, and it just pulls a bunch of cards, reads each one, does its thing, spits out a card at the end, and then you look at that and hope you got a meaningful answer. Exactly. If you mispunched a hole in some of your cards, or if heaven help you, you got your cards out of order before you put them in that hopper, then you have a bit of a problem because now you're going to get a bad result at the end, but you're not going to know why. All you're going to know is that you got a bad result. This was very frustrating to Jeff Fredrickson, and he said, we've got to have some kind of error correction here. We need to have some kind of rudimentary monitoring program that can at least point us in the direction of where the bad read was so that we can correct these things. Please give us some error correction software. His superior said, well, we don't have the resources for that. But you know what, Freddy boy? I don't think they called him Freddy boy, but I'm calling him Freddy boy. You know what, Freddy boy? Here's the programming manual. Why don't you go do that? So that began Jeff Fredrickson's descent into madness, (laughs) descent into madness. There you go. That's what started him down the path of computers and computer programming and computer uh, hardware, not just programming, hardware and software. That's what set him down this entire path of figuring out what computers are, what they do and, and how they work and how to make them. Once he gets out of the Air Force, he returns to college part time. He completes an electrical engineering and computer science degree at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. 
while also working at a couple of companies involved in communications and radio and stuff, but with electronics. In the summer of 1973, he starts consulting with Milwaukee Coin Industries. He's in the Milwaukee area. He starts working with them on a consulting basis as Dave Nutting is starting to probe this whole idea of, I've got to figure out solid state because this is going to help me break into the pinball business. By the fall, this is going so well that Nutting actually hires him into the company. And in the fall of 73, around October, I believe, he becomes an employee of Dave Nutting Associates. So as I said a few minutes back, at first they're not doing pinball, but they are starting to look at what they can do with solid state stuff and kind of get a handle on the technology so that they can perhaps eventually go into pinball. They try a couple of things. They had a game that they had put out called Airball. This was a novelty. All of their products were novelty products. In his deposition, Dave Nutting described it as essentially a 3D pinball game. That's not quite an accurate description, but it gives you a starting point. Basically, you had kind of a ping pong ball. You had this contraption in the base of the machine that shot a column of air. Your job was to control this column of air and control this ping pong ball and move it around and get it through various objects in this play field. So it is a three-dimensional play field. It's not really pinball because there's no flippers and stuff, but it's a three-dimensional play field. It's a ball. It's a column of air. Guide the ball around. Get it through these various objects for points. That was air ball. Dave Nutting told Dwayne Nudson, who I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name, but that's okay, to take this game concept they had and convert it to solid state. They did that. They made a prototype of it that was solid state. They couldn't get it to work very well or very reliably, so they never released the solid state version, but they did it. They made a try at it. Meanwhile, Jeff Fredrickson made what was probably their first fully electronic product which was a game called The Safe. It was a safe-cracking game. It's an electromechanical game. It's not a video game. The cabinet literally has a safe dial right in the middle of the cabinet there. For example, rotate left this many, right that many, open. You're doing safe-cracking. You're trying to pick up on audio cues or whatever to figure out when you've, you know, hit on a number. You're trying to open the safe within the time limit. It's a safe-cracking game. Fredrickson makes this game, it's an electronic game, and they release that one. They're starting to get involved in this. They're starting to look into doing the whole pinball thing and starting to get Fredrickson focused on how you would make a pinball work. Then something quite unexpected happened. I mentioned that this novelty game business is hard. Novelty game design and manufacturing business is hard. The company is always looking for ways to augment that business. I mean, that's what's leading them down this solid-state pinball rabbit hole to begin with, after all. Dave Nutting, it's his company, but he's not the only one there. He co-founded it with another guy that was with him at Nutting Industries by the name of Dan Winter. Dan Winter was actually serving as the president. Dan was somebody that Harold Montgomery knew through Cutler Hammer. They needed a manufacturing guy. So Dave Nutting hired him to oversee operations at Nutting Industries. He followed Dave to Milwaukee Coin Industries. 
I don't know if he was technically a co-founder in the sense of being on the paperwork, but he was a co-founder in the sense that he was there from day one and that he followed Dave over from the other company. He became the president, ultimately, of Milwaukee Coin Industry. There's a board as well because it is an incorporated company. So there's people there besides Dave Nutting. He doesn't have full control over everything. Their marketing man, John Ancona, was good friends with Jules Millman, who was the founder of what became the Aladdin's Castle arcade chain. We've mentioned, I think, at various points, Aladdin's Castle, but it was the beginning of the shopping mall arcade, really. He might not have been the first guy to get an arcade into an enclosed shopping mall, but Aladdin's Castle became the first really successful shopping mall arcade chain. And of course, after going through a number of ownership changes, they still existed when you and I were kids, Jeffrey. There was an, uh, I know there was an Aladdin's Castle uh, over in Fairview Heights, so I don't think I ever actually went into it. You are right. We have mentioned Aladdin's Castle multiple times. Mm-hmm. So Ancona was really good friends with Jules Millman and knew about the success that Millman was having with these arcades. He said, you know what we could do to augment our novelty game manufacturing business? We could go into shopping mall arcades. Dave and the board and everyone else like, yeah, we can try that. They founded the Red Baron chain of amusement arcades, no doubt because they had already used that name on what I presume was their most successful product. They start the Red Baron thing. They started at just the right time when this whole shopping mall arcade thing is really starting to take off. Pretty soon, they're operating over 20 arcades, stretching from the Midwest out to the far west. They have them like from Ohio to Arizona, something like that. They have about 20 shopping mall arcades. It's clearly going to be a growth business. The board of MCI basically says, this business is great. This business is wonderful. This business is a lot simpler than this darn game manufacturing business. Operating is easy. (laughs) So let's not do that anymore. In mid-1974, Dave Nutting was asked to leave politely. Okay, I love you. Bye-bye. Now, it's kind of a weird situation because Dave Nutting actually owns the building that the company is headquartered in. Yet the company is kicking him out. Yeah, because the board, you know. <laughs> that, that's the problem with a board. It's like <laughs> if you have someone who has main control of it, and then the board sort of goes against the person who has all the assets, I guess. Mm-hmm. And they're not public at this point, right? Right, they're not a public company, but they are a corporation with a board. <laughs> they do have a board, so the board can dictate things, even though it was founded and developed funded and all this other thing by Dave, if the board countermands him and overrules him and says, bye-bye, that does put that interesting situation. And you can be like, well, I'm going to take my uh, ball and go home. And uh, by the way, you don't have a building anymore. He let them keep the building. (laughs) Did he now? I mean, he let them keep using the building. He still owned it. He didn't like sell them the building. No, he let them stay in the building. Charge them rent. (laughs) Exactly. Basically, they said, we're going to cancel all engineering projects. We're going to be an arcade operations company only, and your services are no longer required. Okay, thanks, bye. Dave takes Jeff Fredrickson, who is definitely his top bright young engineer, and establishes a new company within the same building. So he takes a corner of his building. MCI slash Red Baron is still in the building. He is also in the building. 
He is doing what he has always done, but he's no longer doing it through Milwaukee Coin Industries. He has now founded a brand new company in mid-74, June 74, called Dave Nutting Associates. I guess at some point he heard about his brother doing <laughs> Nutting Associates, so he's like, okay, well, last time when I used the name, there was enough confusion, I can sort of cash in on that. So let's just call it Dave Nutting Associates, and I'm going to cash in on that. Exactly. He secures a contract with Bally. Bally uses a lot of outside developers for things, including its internal staff. He secures a contract as a consultant with Bally to make new games to keep the lights on. And he really focuses in with Jeff, who, like I said, came with him, on this solid-state pinball project. That is where we will pick up the story in part two. We will take him through his truly revolutionary moves into solid-state pinball design, and from there into microprocessor-based video games. And presumably because he has this relationship with his previous company where... He has a distribution network he can probably call upon and an operating network he can call upon. He's not going to be a manufacturer. He's going to be a contractor working with other companies to create products that they then buy from him and manufacture. He doesn't need any of that. He's more of an R&D setup as opposed to a manufacturing and dealing with the nuts and bolts of how to actually manufacture everything. He's the one who says, hey... I got this really good idea of how you might want to come up with the design of this, how you implement that. It's all up on you. Right. Look at how cool this test product is and this concept is. Exactly. Nutting Industries was a manufacturing company. Milwaukee Coin Industries was a manufacturing company. Dave Nutting Associates is going to be an R&D company. As we will see in our next episode, it's going to be an R&D company that truly changes the world of video games. We have a lot of excellent build-up here as to where Dave has come from and where he might be going. So we will see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies that Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode used under the Creative Commons Attribution License. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. 